0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Despite uh, the circumstances we find ourselves in, it's always a privilege to bring the Word of God to the people of God. Our scripture reading this morning is from Numbers 21, 4 through 9. I'm going to read the text to you now. It's printed for you in the bulletin on the screen. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a certain serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word today and right now and apply it to our lives so that we might hear it and walk away changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there's some things that I'm sure we've gotten a little sick of hearing. One of the words I've gotten sick of hearing recently is the word unprecedented, often used to describe the time we're living in. We're over two months now into our quote-unquote new normal, which is the other catchphrase that I'm also tired of hearing about. We all know deep down what we're experiencing isn't normal but i mean that in a deeper way than merely being stuck inside our houses um, not being able to go outside and having screaming kids um, running around the house all day while we try to get our jobs done for those of us that are fortunate to be able to work from home for those of us that are uh, not as fortunate uh, it entails the very risk of getting sick from a deadly disease just by showing up to where we have to go to work. COVID-19 is a disease that you can get without even manifesting symptoms. You could be carrying around this germ that can be passed to other people with potentially lethal results. We've upended our economies and spent trillions of dollars uh, to mitigate the effects of this disease. Medical researchers from around the world are working nonstop around the clock uh, to find a vaccine, to find a cure, so that this can all be over with. All of us can sense the the desperation that we, many of us have uh, to return to a time and place when we won't have to worry about this anymore. But what if I told you that if and when this is all over, God willing, soon, that all of you are still going to be infected with a disease that is 100% lethal, with no earthly cure. Would you have that same desperation to find help, the same desperation to warn others Would you have the same urgency? Would you be taking every precaution, every measure possible? The truth is that after this is all over, people will still be dying. All the doctors can do right now, even for the sick right now, is not save them. They merely delay the inevitable. Death comes for us all. See, disease, suffering, and death are all symptoms of a greater and more deadly disease that is just as invisible as COVID. The disease that I'm talking about is sin, the human rejection of God as our king. Like COVID-19, this disease afflicts the old and the young, the rich and the poor, the black and the white. It knows uh, no distinction. In our text today, I hope to show from, from this text that we've been diagnosed with this condition, sin. That our prognosis is dire and that our only cure is Jesus. We've been diagnosed with the disease of sin. Our prognosis is dire and our only cure is Jesus. First, let's look at our diagnosis. Before we dive in, it's important to give a little bit of uh, context to the book of Numbers since we haven't been going through it as a congregation. The Hebrew title for the book of Numbers is uh, literally means in the wilderness, and it describes the period of time between God uh, saving Israel from slavery in Egypt and their arrival in the promised land of Canaan. The book of Numbers is the history of that time in between, that time in the wilderness, and it's apropos to... Our situation today because similarly to the Israelites we are also in between we've been saved from our sin if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and we are walking towards the promised land that one day God is going to take away all the disease and sin and sickness of this world and usher in a new heavens and new earth when Where none of this will no longer uh, have a place. But right now, we're in that in between, that wilderness period. The wilderness can be a barren and lifeless place. For Israel, there was no food or water to drink, they were wholly dependent upon God to provide for them. God literally rained down bread from heaven to the Israelites to eat, and provided them water out of dry, dusty rocks for them to drink. And God had made it clear to Israel that it was not because of their moral excellence, their righteousness, or their virtue that he had chosen to save them and make them his chosen people. Indeed, Israel was every bit as faithless and idolatrous as the nations around them, This can be proven when you read the first half of the book of Numbers. There's an account of when the Israelites finally arrive in the land of Canaan for the first time. They sent 12 spies into the land to scout out the defenses of the inhabitants. And the spies brought back mixed reports. On the one hand, Canaan was indeed a prosperous uh, good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, just like God had said. But on the other hand, the inhabitants were strong and numerous, had powerful cities and armies. And how could the Israelites hope to overcome these inhabitants when they had just been wandering through the wilderness with nothing but uh, the clothes on their backs? So, the Israelites shrank back. They shrank back from the task that God had given them to conquer the land and to settle it. And they also shrank back from God's great promise that he would be the one to fight on their behalf and to deliver the land over to them. They doubted his ability to deliver on the goods. They chose to complain to God instead, accuse him of bringing, uh, bringing them out to Canaan to be slaughtered. And God judged the, that, that generation of Israelites for their unbelief. He condemned them to walk in the wilderness for 40 years and said that none of them would set foot in the land of Canaan, but instead their children, whom they had said would become a prey, God would give this land to them. And right before Numbers 21, we read about the transition from the first to the second generation. Uh, The story begins to turn, as it were, within the book. The second generation has now grown up, and they're ready to take on the mantle. They're ready to take on this task of conquering the promised land. And then God confirms this by granting them a resounding victory against a Canaanite king, Arad in Numbers chapter 20. Also, Aaron, the brother of Moses, the priest of Israel, uh, dies. And his son is made high priest in his place, symbolizing the passage of the torch from the first generation to the second generation. So at this point in our story, it seems like we've reached rock bottom already. And now, the Israelites are going to be going from strength to strength, from victory to victory. But as we have read, that's not what happens. We pick up the story in verse 4. Then they traveled to Mount Hor, from Mount Hor, by the road to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient along the way. Israel, in the previous chapter, had asked Edom, their brother nation, descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob, Uh, they had asked Edom if they could have safe passage through their land to Canaan. This would have been a direct route eastwards from where they were, and it would have been a much simpler journey. Instead, Edom refused to grant them passage, and Israel was compelled to go all the way around edom south to the red sea and then back north we can't be sure exactly how um how long how much longer the journey was but i think it's pretty clear from the geography that it tripled or even quadrupled the length of their journey and they became impatient they had just won a great victory they were so close to the promised land, they, they could almost see it and taste it. And yet, another detour after 40 years of wandering already. A few years ago, my family went on vacation to Lake Tahoe in the Sierra Nevada Mountains uh, between Nevada and California. It's a beautiful area if you ever get a chance to go. And... Uh, about a week into our vacation, we decide we want to take a break from the sightseeing uh, around the mountains and uh, drive down to Sacramento, to the city, and explore there. It's about a two-hour drive, there's pretty much only one uh, main road, one interstate that was only built uh, 50, 40, 50 years ago um, that traverses through the Sierra Nevada Mountains. So. We get on the interstate and start heading down the mountain. As we uh, begin our day, we notice that weather's still kind of bad, even though it was uh, March. But in the mountains, uh, weather can be very unpredictable. So we spend the day in the city, and uh, after eating dinner, I think around 5 p.m., we decided to head back start driving back up the mountain and uh, on the interstate we see all the cars in front of us begin to pull over to an exit ahead of us we also pull over and stop at a gas station to find out what's going on and it turns out that the road ahead is blocked because of the snow earlier in the morning uh, caused a terrible accident on the roads a tractor trailer Uh, had wiped out and the whole road was blocked. We check our GPS to see if how long the detour was going to take and a two-hour trip had now turned into a seven-hour trip. And here we are and I'm driving a big minivan totally unprepared for the mountain roads. We don't have any snow tires. we're driving through pitch black uh, roads. There's, there's no lights at all. Uh, we're taking these hairpin uh, switchbacks back and forth for hours and hours. Meanwhile, our phone, we're just hoping has enough battery to, to last. We've got it plugged in to the car. Uh, My wife's in the back. She's trying to deal with Paul, who was only a year old at the time, and he's fussing and crying the whole way. Um, I think she ended up pretty much breastfeeding him for for six hours straight, I think. And uh, I just remember during uh, that that time saying, you know, this is going to be a great story in a couple years. (laughs) And try to console ourselves with that. But at the time, it was not funny, not funny at all. The relief we felt when we finally pulled into the driveway that night at 1 a.m. was unbelievable. Isn't that the way with trial? It's easier with hindsight to look back on it and smile and see that God had brought it about for, for some good purpose, but in the midst of it, it's really hard for us to see what good could come of this. It's not sinful to feel anxious or afraid when trial comes when difficult times come in our lives it's what we do with that anxiety and worry that matters and we can see what the israelites did in the next verse we read the people spoke out against god and against moses why have you brought us out out of egypt to die in the wilderness for there is no bread or water and we detest this worthless food This isn't the first time that Israel has complained to God, as we've already seen. In fact, this second generation that was supposed to have learned from the mistakes of the first generation was repeating the mistakes of their fathers. And in some ways, uh, what they do here goes beyond even what their fathers had done in the past. Usually the Israelites uh, quarrel only with Moses, not God directly. They go to Moses and complain to Moses, and Moses goes to God. But here the text says that they spoke out against Moses and against God. They're not afraid to bring up charges against their Redeemer, who had rescued them out of Egypt. And when we think about it, when we consider what they say here, we can see that... Their statement is a lie on several levels. First, they accused God of bringing them out into the wilderness to die. The truth is that they were dying under the slavery of Egypt, being crushed under the labor there. And God had brought them out into the wilderness to live and to worship him. Second, they stated that there was no bread or water, when in reality God had provided bread from heaven and water from rocks miraculously throughout their journey they had never gone hungry they God had even provided meat for them when they complained earlier uh, about the bread getting to be monotonous and again here they complain about the food that they do have and they call it worthless hebrew word here is uh, a word that has connotations of of lightness of of contemptuousness that this food is just not worth anything it's it's of no value let's not mince words here the Israelites are doing nothing less than accusing God of being a murderer a liar and worthy of contempt we should look on their words with horror However, as always, it's much easier for us to criticize and judge people that we read about or other people in our lives than to turn the burning light of God's word upon ourselves. In particular, it's always easier to read the Old Testament and think we would have been different if we had stood in their place, if we had seen what they had seen and experienced what they've experienced. We would never doubt God for a second, right? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul writes about our fathers, and by that he means the Israelites, that these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. The implication being that we are fully capable of doing the same thing and would have done the same thing as they did. In verse 9, in 1 Corinthians, he writes that we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. So, Old Testament or New Testament, there's one people of God, and that people has always had the same problems. We suffer from the same sin that they suffered from. The same, We inherited the same sin nature that they did, because we're all descended from Adam. We read uh, earlier today in our scripture reading a passage from Romans 5 which describes the original pandemic of sin, that sin entered the world through one man and and then spread to all men, and death came as well as a consequence of sin. In addition to being uh, an incurable lethal disease, sin can also be likened to a cruel, unforgiving master. The Israelites' attitude towards Egypt here might be compared to that of a victim of domestic abuse towards her abuser. You've heard things said like, oh, you know, he's not really that bad. He doesn't mean all that. He just, you know, gets angry sometimes. You know, he, I know he's a good person deep down. I'm going to go back to him. I'm not going to call the police. I'm not going to get out of that situation. Isn't that what sin says to us? God is such a harsh taskmaster. Stay here with me. Be comfortable with me. Be at peace with me. In reality, to be in the wilderness without any food or water, but to have God near, that is, freedom. To be in Egypt, you might have food, you might have, you know, some comforts, but you're a slave, and you will be a slave forever. Modern affluent people like us, uh, we like to plan. We like to plan our lives. We plan out where we want to live, what school we want to go to, What job we want to have, what friends we enjoy being around, what church we go to, what kind of car we like to drive, what exotic cuisine we like to eat on a given weeknight. The options that are available to us on a day-to-day basis about every detail of our lives are astounding compared to the lives of the vast majority of people that have ever lived before us. Most of us enjoy lifestyles that even royalty didn't have access to in the past. We fancy ourselves the masters of our own destinies. And we accordingly also fashion God in this image. No longer do we exist to serve God, but God exists to serve us. And if God doesn't give us what we want, when we want it, then we're angry at him. We wonder why. He's withholding what we deserve. If there's anything COVID-19 has revealed, if any, if there's anything that the year 2020 has revealed to us, it's that we're not in control. We're not the masters of our fate. We are still helpless and finite creatures, dependent upon God. God is using calamity to show us our sin. To show us our great need for him, just as he did for the Israelites in the wilderness. It's easy for us to be at peace with our sin when things are comfortable, when we have all of our external needs met. It's easy to worship God when we're blessed with material things, as Satan accused Job of doing in the book of Job. But when these temporary things are taken away, it becomes much easier to see our sin. Brothers and sisters, we are all sin sick. Let the scriptures diagnose you. Because as the doctors among us know, without an accurate diagnosis, there can be no treatment. I want to turn now to our prognosis. If we're sick, how bad are we off? How bad is it really? In the next verse we read that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God judges Israel for their unbelief in his provision by sending deadly snakes to bite them. The term fiery here can either be referring to the color of the snakes or it could be describing the sensation of being bitten by them. Regardless, they were poisonous snakes and they were quickly making God's judgment Felt and known throughout all the people. The natural question that you might ask here is, why why does God use snakes? What's so special about snakes? Why does He go through all this uh, elaborate um, means to dispense His judgment, His discipline? Well, I don't think it's an arbitrary choice. Snakes have always carried uh, symbolic meaning. Uh, to many different cultures around the world. You might be familiar with uh, the snake image on the Don't Tread on Me flags that you might see associated with certain political affiliations. (laughs) In the context of this text, snakes were symbolic of the power of Egypt. Pharaoh's crown was fashioned in the likeness of snakes to demonstrate his divine authority over all of Egypt. The bites of these serpents would have reminded Israel of the cruel whips on their backs as they labored to build Egyptian monuments. It's as if God was saying to Israel, you really want to go back to Egypt. Well, let me remind you of what life really was like there. But beyond the immediate cultural and historical context of our passage, the snake should also bring to mind the scene in the garden of eden when satan disguised as a serpent came to deceive adam and eve to tempt them away from doing what the word of god had instructed them to do satan our ancient enemy even now is the prince of this world opposed to god and his kingdom to long Egypt to long for sin is to desire to be his slave and the end of sin is death not just physical death which the serpents were inflicting on the people but spiritual death being subject to the wrath of God forever in hell this is the great and terrible reality for people apart from the grace of God But brothers and sisters, God loves us too much to leave us in such a state. In Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel his firstborn son. He is our heavenly father, and one of the most important duties of the father towards his children is discipline. Now, it's important to remember here that God had saved Israel already from their slavery in Egypt. And now they were already his chosen people, his treasured possession. So his attitude towards them is that of a father to a son. And his attitude towards you, if you count yourself as a believer of Jesus Christ, is that of a loving father. And we know that it's unloving for fathers to abstain from exercising discipline over their children when their children... Disobey. It's actually a sign of God's wrath upon sinners when they are allowed to multiply sin after sin. The Puritan pastor, Thomas Brooks, writes in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which, by the way, is an excellent book for those who are interested in getting into um, Puritan theology. He writes this. Woe. Woe to the soul that God will not spend a rod on. This is the saddest stroke of all, when God refuses to strike at all. When the physician gives over to the patient, you say, ring out the no, this man is dead. So when God gives over a soul to sin without control, you may truly say, this soul is lost. You may ring out his no. Do you hear that brothers and sisters? If God rebukes you for your sin, if God works through maybe his, uh, his word that convicts you, his spirit that uh, troubles your conscience through his church, perhaps through the exercise of proper church discipline, through the, the kind but true words of a friend who loves you, through circumstances that he brings about, the consequences of sin when God brings all this to pass it's a sign that he loves you and that he's for you not that he hates you and he's against you he loves you too much to let you be destroyed by your sin and there's good news there is a cure God has graciously provided a means through which we can be healed We read on in verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, He would look at the bottom, uh, at the bronze serpent and live. The serpents served their intended purpose. The people realized their condition and their need for God's grace and they cried out to him Remember who this God is, who he has revealed himself to be. When When he revealed his glory to Moses, he said of himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He won't turn away anyone who cries out to him. Hear that. Believe that. And this rest of the story is interesting, to say the least. Again, just as with the snakes, God didn't have to specify an elaborate means through which the Israelites We're going to be healed. He could have just taken the snakes away and healed them without any of this bronze snake stuff. Yet he tells Moses to go ahead and erect this pole with a bronze serpent attached at the top. And then the people are to look at the pole pole and receive healing. The word used for pole here could also be translated as uh, battle standard, or flagpole that has those sorts of connotations and I don't think that's by accident remember how Israel had been freed from Egypt God had performed these, all these mighty wonders struck the Egyptians with great plague great plagues and then brought them miraculously through the Red Sea on dry land and then he triumphed over the Egyptian army by drowning them in the sea when they tried to follow Right afterwards, in Exodus 15, there's this great victory song that Moses and Israel sing about God. This is what they say. They say, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and this rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This imagery of God as a triumphant warrior, triumphing over his enemies, is is throughout the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in the wisdom literature, um, all over the place. And if we keep this battle imagery in our minds, then I think we can start to see the intent of this serpent on a pole. Armies uh, throughout history, when they clashed, have uh, traditionally carried banners into battle that represented uh, the king or the country that the army was fighting for. And to capture the opposing battle standard was basically to symbolize victory over the enemy, that the enemy had been vanquished and conquered. The image of this snake Uh, such a potent symbol of Egypt but now dead and frozen atop this pole demonstrated that God had utterly defeated Egypt when Israelites gazed upon that pole they would be reminded of that great victory that God had won for them the very thing that they had forgotten the very thing that caused them to stumble into sin again forgetting who their God was and what he had done for them. And just as the snake on the pole was a picture of God's triumph over Egypt, so too was the Israelites looking at the pole, a picture of believing in the Lord's power to heal them. There are two different Hebrew verbs here that are translated see and look in our text. And commentators have noted that by using two different verbs, the author is making clear that it wasn't just by Glancing casually upwards at this pole, that the Israelites were to be healed. No, they were to affix their gaze and also exercise their hearts to bring to mind all of these things that we have just discussed. In short, they were to appropriate God's healing power through faith. It wasn't the snake uh, healing them magically. This wasn't some sort of pagan rite that was taking place. The power to heal was the Lord's and the Lord's alone to exercise. And the Israelites were to receive this power through believing that the Lord was able to do this. In fact, later on in 2 Kings, we read that the snake pole had become a stumbling block, had become an idol to Israel. They had begun worshiping it as if... It itself had some sort of intrinsic power to heal John Calvin uh, wrote that the human heart is an idol factory we are so adept at making idols we can even pervert the worship of the true God into idolatry and in 2nd Kings Hezekiah one of the righteous Judean kings has this pole torn down and destroyed because it had become an idol to the to the Israelites. One of the things that I miss the most about our present situation, that our present situation has has caused, rather, is, is the Lord's Supper. And I know that many of you miss partaking of the Lord's Supper as well. Well, there's a lot of theology that uh, we could talk about the Lord's Supper, Um There's one thing that I think we could take from this text and apply. That is to say that the Lord's Supper is not a magical meal. When we partake of it, when we are asked to discern the body and blood of Jesus, to look not to the physical elements to save us or to the physical elements as something worthy of worship, but rather to feed spiritually upon Christ through the means of the bread and the wine. It's Jesus that saves, not bread and wine. And it's to him that we ought to fix our gaze upon. And that leads me to my conclusion for this text. Because the Lord himself called attention to this episode of the bronze snake. It was not meant to merely be interpreted as this uh, historical account of God's rescue from Egypt. In John 3, Jesus says in his discussion with Nicodemus that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must must the Son of God be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus draws a bright line from this text to his person and his work. I want to focus specifically on the phrase he uses here, this lifting up that he speaks of. Jesus is talking about being lifted up, both in a physical sense, being hoisted up onto a wooden cross, but also a, a spiritual sense of being exalted, being glorified, being set above all things. If, if, if you're familiar with John, you'll know that he talks about Jesus being glorified, and this is synonymous with Jesus' uh, passion, his, his death on the cross and his resurrection this was the lowest point of human history that the only innocent man who ever lived was to be executed like a criminal to die in agony but where was the glory in it well it lay in the fulfillment of the ancient promise that god first made back in the garden to adam and eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, would defeat Satan. In John twelve thirty one, Jesus declares, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, Jesus triumphed over Satan at the cross. He defeated him utterly. And totally he is the victorious man of war the one who binds the strong man the one who sets the captives free brothers and sisters the cure for our disease is not to be found within ourselves it's not to be wished away as an illusion it's not to be thought away in positive thinking there's no answers within ourselves only more sin and sickness but outside of ourselves cast your gaze upon jesus your lord and savior the one who defeated satan and sin who paid the penalty that we deserved and who was raised from the dead from our justification the one who now sits enthroned on high upholding the universe by the word of his power the one who draws you and me to himself by his spirit who is present among us. Let the cross of Jesus be our battle standard and let us share in the triumph of Jesus over Satan. As Revelation 12, says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Brothers and sisters, fix your gaze upon Jesus and be healed. Let him lead us to the banquet hall. And let his banner over us be love. Let's pray.